according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are here for the purpose of growth. You can turn to Matthew 14. Matthew 14. And uh, let's see. Let me change my mind. Turn to John, John chapter 6. We'll stay in the Gospel of John as we get started. John chapter 6, starting in verse 15. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. It would do us no good to sit here in carnality this morning, so let's take a moment for silent prayer. I trust you were probably in fellowship when you had your prayer meeting. And you haven't uh, gotten too carnal since then, but just in case, let's uh, open with prayer here this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege and blessing that it is to assemble together. We ask for your hand a blessing upon our study and setting aside of distractions, Father. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right. This uh, Walking on Water is episode 37 in the Galilean ministry. We'll get our slideshow running again. It is covered by both Matthew, Mark, by the three Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and John. The only one Gospel is not recorded is the Gospel of Luke. That's highly unusual. Typically, we will find events that are covered in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We call those the synoptic Gospels, and they tend to be largely overlapping in the ground that they cover. John is the Gospel that tends to be largely unique. In fact, 90% unique. Uh, Most of John's material is unique to John. But this is an event uh, following the feeding of the 5,000, which was covered by all four Gospels. This is an event that's uh, covered by three out of the four. Uh, The Lord's most public miracle was followed by a crucial private miracle. I believe this walking on water was designed to be a private miracle to be instructive to the disciples, those that needed to be uh, corrected in their attitudes. And we will be looking at that here today. Um, It has some sub points under this that I'll pass over. But the immediacy of sending the disciples in the boat and getting them out of the picture was, uh, was noteworthy. And once they were sent away, then he dismissed the crowds. He wanted those disciples out of the picture in a very quick fashion. Secondly, before scaring his disciples, Jesus bade this work assignment in prayer. Did he know the night before that he was going to scare the willies out of them? You know, well, we don't exactly know. But we do know that the father was very uh, uh, quick to give guidance to Jesus uh, before work assignments came up uh, that particular assignments were coming or that particular work assignments were expected. Uh, That was the nature of the Old Testament prophetic gift and the Old Testament prophetic ministry. Uh, We saw in the episode leading up to this when he was testing Philip that uh, the Lord himself knew what he intended to do. And so that's from John 6, 6. So we realize that uh, the Lord didn't just wing it when he uh, pursued certain aspects of ministry, that he had intentions, he had plans, and he followed through on those plans. We learn in this episode that sometimes those intentions and those plans had to be changed, that he would have an intention and then have to modify that intention based upon the circumstances that, uh, that then occurred. So before scaring his disciples, he bade the work assignment in prayer, and he spent the night in prayer, at least to uh, the middle of the night. It was 3 a.m. when he saw them struggling. Point three, this storm is the second such storm to terrify the disciples. We recently went through the calming of the sea where he said, peace be still, and he calmed the storm waters. In that episode, though, uh, he was with them during the storm. In this episode, he's not with them during the storm. He's up on the mountain praying. They're out there by themselves in the boat. And uh, so it becomes another test of their faith. Are they afraid of the storm like they were last time? And why is that? Uh, Does it make a difference that he's not physically sitting there in the boat with them? He's still sovereign, is he not? He's still going to take care of them, is he not? It should make no difference whether he's in the boat with them or he's up on the mountain or he's, he's uh, in Austin, Texas or wherever he might happen to be. No, Jesus never went to Austin, Texas. So, but his, the fact that he's not there shouldn't make a difference. The centurion realized that distance wasn't a factor. The, the rich man realized distance wasn't a factor. 
the uh, disciples should likewise have had a similar fate, uh, uh, faith. I find it interesting, too, that not only were they weak in faith, he, he rebukes them as being those of little faith, but um, they, they allow that fear to grow into an even greater fear. Fear of dying leads to this fear of ghosts, and uh, we talked a little bit about that. Divine sovereignty prevented them from reaching the other side and ensured this Bible class to administer maximum impact. They should have made this crossing in no time at all. I mean, it was, it was simply the, this lake is called a sea, but it's really a lake, and it's only seven miles at its widest point. And if they were in the more northern section of the lake, then it was smaller than seven miles. It may have only been four or five miles across from, from side to side. And so uh, by three o'clock in the morning, they, they should have been there and should have been there uh, hours prior. It doesn't take that long to sail across. And even if you had to row across, you could make that time and that, uh, or that distance in that amount of time. Obviously, what was at work here was sovereignty because who's in charge of the weather? You know, who's in charge of the contrary winds? Who's in charge of the waves? Who's in charge of, of, of everything? All right. And so we can uh, come to accept that. I think oftentimes as the puny creatures we are, uh, the finite beings we are, we tend to get upset over things that are out of our control because we think that, well, it's not going fast enough or it's not going the way we think it needs to go, or we're not content with the circumstances we find ourselves in. But we need to just stop a minute, slow down, take a deep breath, give it a prayer, and ask ourselves, why are we not content with the circumstances we're presented with? Who's in charge of those circumstances? And, and then, when we can finally confess that, then we have to confess how we were accusing God of being unfair. <laughs> because maybe we didn't vocalize it. Maybe we didn't come right out and say, my circumstances are unfair. But when we're complaining about them, that's what we're doing. So if we stop and just take a perspective to say, who's in charge of this? Who put me here? Why am I here? And, uh, and trust that the Father has a plan for it. And it's in his wisdom that I'm where I am. See, then we can uh, start praising him instead of blaming him for the things that, we're, uh, things that we're dealing with. So the storm there, the Lord being in charge of that. Under point five, we ran out of time. This is where we're harmonizing and sequencing the incident. Harmonizing and sequencing the incident. We're going to put all the Gospels together to get a sequence. While still on land at 3 a.m., Jesus observed the disciples struggling in the middle of the sea. The record in the Gospel of Mark makes it clear that he's still on the mountain. He views them. And whether that's natural human sight, uh, probably not, given the darkness, given the storm, given the distance involved. On a clear day, you can see to the other side. But given that it's nighttime and given that it's uh, uh, stormy conditions... It uh, would be unreasonable to, to think that standard human vision would be capable of seeing this, this boat being tossed around out there. Uh, but nevertheless, it is called in Mark 6, it is called sight. And so undoubtedly, there was prophetic sight that uh, allowed him with his gift of prophecy to be able to see them there. Secondly, he intended to pass by them. Again, that's in the Gospel of Mark. Mark 6, verse 48 says that he intended to pass by them. And much of our comment last week was focused on those intentions and how do we react when our intentions have to be set aside, when we have to change our intentions because the Father has other plans, all right? Are we willing to change our intentions based upon those other plans? If we're not willing to change our intentions, then what's the basis behind our intentions anyway when it comes right down to that? All right, thirdly, the disciples are afraid of ghosts, a little bit of vocabulary study on the phantasms, phantasma, from Matthew 14 and Mark 6. Now, when they say we think it's a ghost, do you believe in ghosts? Did the disciples believe in ghosts? Was that traditional for Jewish people to believe in ghosts? Yes and no. Uh, basically, if they had a biblical background under the law, then uh, the Jewish approach would be that they believed in in demons, they believed in evil spirits and so forth. They believed in demoniacs, that is demon possession. Uh, but to the extent that they were affected by the cultures around them, if they had started to adopt Greek uh, mythology, if they started to adopt some of the uh, Babylonian and Persian uh, influences, then yes, they could be very superstitious and they might be uh, very terrified of ghosts. And so it's kind of interesting. It's not exactly clear what's driving this thought of a phantasm, a uh, phantasma. If they were thinking it through biblically, 
they probably wouldn't have used such vocabulary. They might have used daimonion, they might have used demon, they might have used evil spirit. The fact that they used this pagan vocabulary, the Greek phantasma, uh, indicates that some of their thinking is being affected by the world's system, by the mythology of their day. And that uh, that's a problem. And if you and I start spotting that, that our thinking is being adapted to the world's way of thinking, just stop and ask yourself, why am I using the world's vocabulary? All right? And whatever it might be, you know, if, why, do we adopt, why do we adopt the world's terms like codependency? Why do we adopt the world's secular terms, uh, the, the psychological terms or whatnot? See, how about the biblical terms? Let's just call it idolatry. You know, that's what the Bible uses. Um, you know, let's, let's keep it grounded in our divine viewpoint perspective because I think, now, you can use whatever vocabulary you want, but is it not a slippery slope from using those terms to thinking that philosophy? And, uh, and I believe it is. So I would much rather use the biblical terms. You know, they want to use nice terms like living together. You know, let's just call it fornication. You know, <laughs> you know, well, if you listen to Ed and Sam in the morning, I was getting a little upset this morning when radio guys were talking about there's nothing wrong with living together and that kind of thing. Sergeant Sam called it shacking up, you know, well, all right, how about the biblical term? They're fornicating in any event. Uh, the use of phantasm here of this vocabulary is noteworthy, and I don't think uh, you can read too much into that, but still you can't deny that they used this uh, this pagan term. Then Jesus exhorts them, and this is where we want to pick up on it here in John 6. He exhorts them with a threefold command, take courage is the first one, be enheartened or be courageous. It's a present active imperative from Tharseo, and um, it is an active voice, meaning that the subject of the verb is expected to accomplish the activity. The subject of the verb is expected to accomplish the activity. And so we might render it instead of, because unfortunately in English, be heartened and be courageous uh, almost takes on itself the, uh, the, the passive nature of it. It's not passive, it's an active verb. And so we might choose to translate this, adopt an, uh, a courageous attitude, adopt a courageous mindset. See, we've been using terms like mindset and attitude in describing the operational functions of faith, hope, and love. And I want to keep using those terms because I think we, we miss the mark if we just call it thinking. We don't want to have courageous thinking. We want to have a courageous mindset. And a courageous mindset will then produce courageous thoughts, courageous words, and courageous deeds. We want to have a love mindset that will produce loving thoughts, loving words, and loving deeds. See, if you limit it to just simply, if you take an operational function as being a thought pattern, then you're not backing up the one necessary step in order to produce thoughts of love. See, because you're defining the operational function as a thought pattern. Operational function is not a thought pattern. An operational fun a function is a mindset or an attitude that will then generate those thoughts. Thoughts, words, and deeds. So an operational function underlies overt activity, verbal activity, and even thinking activity, the mental activity of, of thoughts. So likewise here with take courage, I would prefer to translate that as adopt a courageous attitude. Adopt a courageous mindset that can then produce courageous thoughts, courageous words, and courageous deeds. So that's his first imperative. And it is a present active imperative, meaning continuous action in present time. Starting now and on a continuous basis, that is your ongoing courage. It's not just a one-shot deal. And it's not an aorist imperative where you're commanded to do something and, and it's, only, it's a one-thing deal. So you, you get courageous for a moment. You, you work up a little bit of confidence, and, and then there it is. And then as soon as you accomplish it, it's spent, and it's over, and it's done. That's kind of a, a one-shot courage deal. That's not what the Lord's telling him to do here. The Lord is saying continuously adopt this mental attitude, this mindset of uh, courageousness. I'll find a better way to translate that before this class is over. The second statement he tells them is, I am. Take courage, I am. Now, as I read here, the, um, 
verse 20 from John chapter 6. He said to them, I am. Do not be afraid. Let me put this up on the screen for you. Down in verse 20. You can look at all of these, but we'll just look at the John example. Now, the New American Standard rendered this, it is I. Do not be afraid. I, I really dislike the rendering of it is I. Verse 20 says, Ha de tois, ego amy. Ha de lego, right here. Let me just underline it for you. In a color you can see. Ha de autois, but he said to them, and then here's what he said to them. Ego amy. Ego, the pronoun I, amy, the verb I am. I, even I, am. And this is the statement of deity. This is the statement of I am. Ego, amy. It's an identical statement in uh, Mark, and it's the identical statement in Matthew. All right. Now, let's spend some time on I am. This is one of the Gospel of John's great I am statements. Are you familiar with the Gospel of John and the tremendous I am statements in the Gospel of John? They form, uh, for little kids, they form one of the earliest Scripture memory books that they ever learn. That's uh, produced by Scripture Memory Fellowship, the I am memory verse book. And so a lot of these are verses that the young children are learning. Zoe learned these verses. Christopher learned these verses. Um, Alethea might have learned these verses. I don't remember how young she was when we first started doing these scripture memory books. So let's go on a little trip here through the Gospel of John and remind ourselves of these I am statements, starting in John 4.26. John 4.26. This is where he's, in, he's confronting the adulterous woman of Samaria and... Uh, confronting her with uh, her adultery and uh, she's not offended by her adultery being exposed she says sir i perceive that you are a prophet and as soon as she recognizes that he's a prophet she realizes she has a chance to get her questions answered it's been bugging her for some time and uh, she's going to get her questions answered right here and right now because who knows when she'll come face to face with a true prophet so she's uh, bound to determine that she's going to get these questions answered. You know, which mountain is it? Is it our Samaritan mountain, Mount Gerizim right here? Or is it your Jewish mountain, uh, Mount Zion down there in Jerusalem? Which one is it? And so the Lord answers her uh, that, you know, of course, an hour is coming and now is when geography is going to be irrelevant to the Christian way of life. Um, in any event, he gives her this tremendous answer here. Then in verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. She uses both the Jewish term Messiah and the Greek term Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I am. Jesus said to her, I, the one speaking to you, I am. It's a great statement revealing his uh, deity, revealing his nature. All right, over in John chapter 6, notice how many times it comes up here in this chapter. Verse 20, verse 35, verse 41. See, verse 20, where he's out at sea with them, this is the first of several I am statements in this chapter. Verse 35 comes in the bread of life message. Jesus says, said to them, Ego Amy, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. All right, so there's the statement coming to Christ. Verse 41, therefore the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. And they, are, of course, are looking at it in earthly terms and say, well, who does he think he is? Is this not uh, uh, the carpenter's son? Is it not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he say he's come down out of heaven? They're all upset because they're looking at it in earthly terms with some uh, mental attitude sin and some other human viewpoint baggage that keeps them from seeing the, the beauty. Now, you and I can sit down and see I am the bread of life, and we understand it right off the bat. It's not a mystery to us. We're not confused by it. We can appreciate the doctrine. We can appreciate the provision there because we have a pers perspective for doing that. Verse 48, again, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and they died. <laughs> what, a, what an improvement. 
you know, far better than the manna that they ate. That was bread from heaven that the Father supplied. Uh, and yet every single one of them that ever ate that bread died. Most of them before they entered into the land. Caleb and Joshua entered into the land, but even they died later on in, you know, in their own due course. They eventually experienced physical death. This is uh, Jesus as the bread of heaven is far superior than what the uh, manna uh, shadow was all about because his uh, provision is eternal life. Then finally, verse 51, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. This is a wonderful chapter. We will deal with it in turn. But um, each each statement he makes produces a greater response of anger. And so he makes an even greater statement, which produces more anger. And then he makes another greater statement, produces more anger. Finally, he says, you know, if you're having trouble with this, <laughs> how are you going to eat my flesh and drink my blood? Now, why is he why does he go there? Say. It's an interesting, interesting chapter. And each step of the way, it's almost like his statements get more outrageous. In their minds, it's more outrageous of him. And uh, just drives that, that rift wider and wider and wider. You and I, though, with divine view, I've got no problem with eating his flesh and drinking his blood. I understand the metaphor. I'm not going to succumb to some kind of weird cannibalism theory that people try to talk about. All right, over in chapter 8. Let's look at a few more of these. Another string of them in chapter 8, starting in verse 12. Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Again, it's a great I am message. It's a revelation of deity. In this case, he's not only uh, demonstrating for the provision of eternal life but he, uh, through the bread message, but now he's demonstrating the guidance and direction that we find through the provision of light. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but he will have the light of life. See, there are all kinds of problems associated with being dead. Uh, you need the provision of life, obviously, but then the darkness association with death. The fact that uh, the Adamic race was cursed by darkness as the consequence of Adam's sin. That they are, uh, that Adam and, and, and uh, the, all the descendants from Adam were born spiritually dead in their lost estate of total depravity. And uh, there was a need to provide for that darkness. The provision for that darkness was light. There was a need to provide for death. The provision for that was life. There was a need to provide for uh, the, the hatred and enmity that was uh, instituted between man and God, and the provision for that is love. And so John's presenting life, light, and love, showing the uh, provision that uh, is found in Christ that uh, answers all of these difficulties here, all of these uh, barrier items between God and fallen man. Verse 18, I am the testifying one. I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. So he is coming as a witness, as a testifying one. And that testimony is in agreement with the Father's testimony. So it's not, uh, it's not blind faith, and it's not uh, simply one man's self-testimony. Everything has to be confirmed by two or three witnesses. And he has some tremendous witnesses. John testified about him. He is testifying. His father is testifying. The written word is testifying. All of the prophets from Moses onward were testifying. He is one of the most attested prophets ever. The most attested prophet ever. So there's the ego amy I am. Statement of verse 18. Verse 24. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am. Ego amy. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Obviously, we recognize this as the recognition that Christ and Christ alone is the source of our salvation. Faith in Christ is the requirement. Verse 28, Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. Some of the very audience he was speaking to were unbelievers. But after the cross, they would be able to look back with hindsight and say, oh, that's what he was talking about. That here he's simply planting seeds. The cross itself will pour water on those planted seeds. And then the conviction of the Holy Spirit will be such that the pieces will fall into place. The veil of darkness will be pierced. And that the sufficient drawing of the Father will be such that they will uh, identify with Jesus as the Christ. And they will believe. 
So again, verse 28, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak the things as the Father taught me. You know, I think that the, the powerful impact of the cross itself uh, led tremendous numbers to salvation that were the uh, the words prior to the cross were rather rejected and rather hated and rather seemed uh, seemed dubious to these people. Why? Well, because the Pharisees were their experts. The Pharisees were their were their their scholars and their geniuses and their experts and their trusted sources. And and they they said that this guy was wrong. They said he was a heretic. They said that he was out of his mind. They said he had a demon. They said he was a false teacher. So clearly we shouldn't listen to what he has to say because our experts have told us that he's not worth listening to. Right. We have something very similar in our own culture. The experts that would uh, testify in, in to certain things, they would view churches like ours as being a waste of time. So far as that goes. Verse 58. Here they are. You're not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? The old was Christ. And we're using a uh, chronology that has uh, that that has him born at 4 B.C. But what if he was born at 6 B.C.? What if he was born at 7 B.C.? And uh, I mean, that's well within the range of potential and possibilities. Then, uh, then, uh, and if he's crucified in 33 A.D., he could be pushing 40, or he could be 40 in 33 A.D. when he goes to the cross. Moses was 40 when he was driven out into the wilderness. So, uh, and we talk about Jesus being 33 years of age. That's ridiculous. If 33 was the year of crucifixion, and he was born in 4 B.C., then at his minimum, he's 37, and possibly up to 40 if uh, he was born in 7 B.C. So anyway, part of the work that we do in uh, the chronology of it, he was at least 30 years of age when he came to John the Baptist to be baptized. Um, it says approximately or about or around. The word there is at least 30 years of age. In other words, he was the minimum age for a priestly service when he uh, appeared for his ordination. Chances are he was probably 37 years of age and uh, went to the cross at age 40. Anyway, the um, statement here, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? That's a little bit hard to understand if he's really 32. If he's 32, almost 33, and he's going to go to the cross. Uh, let's say he's 31. He'll have his 30, no, he's 32. He'll have his 33rd birthday this Christmas, and then uh, the following spring he goes to the cross. So, uh, and then, I don't know, born December 25th either, but if he's 32... If he just had his 32nd birthday, why are they saying, you're not yet 50 years old? When they say, you're not yet 40 years old. Seems to me. Anyway, I think he was probably pushing 40, so they said, you're not yet 50. And you have, how, how have you seen Abraham? And he said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, ego Amy, I am. The eternal statement of God. All right, there's many, many more of these real quick. Let's just run through them. 9-9. Nine, nine. Others were saying, so they had this great argument. Who is this guy? Actually, that's not a statement of Christ. I should take that one out. That's the man born blind. Chapter 10, verses 7 and 9. Jesus said to them again, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Verse 9, I am the door. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. Uh, chapter 11 and verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Chapter 13 and verse 19. These should all be very, very familiar to every single one of us. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am. All right. Who's he talking to there in chapter 13? Disciples. Aren't they believers? Hmm. All right. Remember that when we get to uh, point six. All right. The disciples are believers except for Judas. Anybody think Judas was saved? Okay. 
verse 14 and 6, chapter 14, verse 6. Two of my daughters in this verse. Jesus said to them, said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The hados, the aletheia, and the zoe. No one comes to the Father but through me. Of course, I have an aletheia, I have a zoe. We didn't find hados to be a very feminine name. And then uh, chapter 15, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Verse 5, I am the vine. You are the branches. Chapter 18, the final three of these in chapter 18, verse 5, verse 6, and verse 8. I laugh every time I read this. I just find it kind of funny. I like to see this on the deleted scenes DVD when we get to heaven. He's in the garden. They come to arrest him. Jesus is going to come here to kiss him and betray him. And uh, Jesus, knowing all things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, Ego Amy, I am. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, Ego Amy, again, verse 6, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. <laughs> Can you just imagine how powerful this statement was? He's, he's spent the night in prayer. He's been sweating great drops of blood. He has been wrestling with his own volitional battles, saying, if it's at all possible, take this cup from me, yet not my will but thine be done. He has been wrestling with the temptation to embrace his own will, and he rejected that temptation and embraced the Father's will. He went and got his disciples and said, why are you sleeping? You need to be praying with me. Pray that you may not enter into temptation, for the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And here he's gone through this, in, in this night of, uh, of anguish. And, and just you can, you can sense how passionate he is. And when he utters, Ego Amy, these men were struck. You can just imagine the power that went forth in that statement. Again, verse 7, he asked, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. And he answered, I told you, Ego, Amy. So if you seek me, let these go their way to fulfill the word which was spoken. So anyway, they uh, affected the arrest and they took him away. So this is one of the Gospel of John's great I am statements. And it's recorded by both Matthew and Mark in this instance of the, all the chain of I am statements that... Uh, John records throughout the gospel. The only one that Matthew and Mark record is this one here in uh, the walking on water incident. Now, the doctrine of I am identifies the Lord Jesus Christ with the Lord God of Israel and specifically with the most sacred memorial name of Yahweh. So point B in your outline, the doctrine of I am identifies the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord, ha kurios is Greek, the Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ is identified with the Lord God of Israel, with Yahweh, Elohei, Yisrael, that is the Lord God of Israel, specifically with the most sacred memorial name of Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. In general, the Greek language, the term kurios means Lord or Master or Sir, it would apply to anybody in authority or anyone, maybe they're not in authority, you just want to address them in polite terms. It's like our modern English word, sir. You walk up and you say, how do you do, sir? Or you answer in a, in a job interview. You answer, yes, sir, no, sir, because you're trying to be polite. You're trying to show respect that you really want this job. <laughs> All right. It doesn't mean that you're calling him Lord. You're just using a polite mode of address. Curios was used for Lord, but it was also used as a polite mode of address. However, Throughout the Gospels, we find that the authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we find that the, their use of kurios was designed specifically to be identified with the Hebrew Yahweh. You might find you know, centurions and other folks that are called Lord in the Gospels, but when they were speaking about the Lord, ha kurios, the Lord, there's one and only one. I mean, how many lords have there been in history? Right, Lord, well, all the English lords, all the nobility, you can call, yeah, Lord Winston Churchill and Lord Byron, there's Lord, there's all kinds of lords in uh, English peerage. But if I, if I don't put a name to it, if I just leave it as the Lord, 
That's one and only. That's the eternal I am. There's no question. The most sacred name of Yahweh. If you want to spell Yahweh in the Hebrew, it's this word right here on the right. This Y-H-W-H. Or just give it the English letters, Y-H-W-H. The doctrine of I am identifies the Lord as Ha Kurios, the Lord Jesus Christ, with the Lord God of Israel, Yahweh Elohe Yisrael, and specifically with the most sacred memorial name of Yahweh. Let's look at Exodus 3.14. Now Yahweh was known earlier than this. Abraham used the name Yahweh. Noah knew the name Yahweh. Yahweh goes back to Genesis chapter 2. The name of Yahweh Elohim, uh, the Lord God, is known in Genesis chapter 2. However, the significance of what Yahweh means was withheld until it was explained to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. In Exodus chapter 3, the Lord is answering Moses, uh, what is this, about his 409th excuse for why he couldn't go. And he had quite a few reasons why he didn't feel up to the task. And so he says, therefore, come now and I will send you to Pharaoh. And uh, Moses has all these objections. And then finally, verse 13, Moses said to God, behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel and I will say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. That is the yellow of your fathers has sent me to you now they may say to me what is his name what shall I say to them I personally don't think that they would have asked him what is his name what would Israel ask the only other time it ever came up was when Jacob was wrestling with the angel and the angel wouldn't give him an answer he said why do you ask me that seeing that it is wonderful and then he realized he'd been wrestling with the angel of the Lord all night long and then uh, he touched his socket and his hip socket was out of joint and all the rest for the rest of his life. And he was renamed Israel at that moment. Um, but it's interesting. That's, the, that's the, the only event in the history of, of Israel, the nation or the person, where the idea that they would request Yahweh Elohim, they would request for a more personal name. And uh, the Lord didn't give it to him. So... Why would Moses fear or suspect that the children of Israel in slavery would demand or ask Moses for the personal name of of the Lord God? I, I think that's rather unreasonable. I don't think that the children of Israel would have asked Moses any such thing. And yet Moses uh, says that, you know, they may ask me this. I think Moses is, is simply grasping for excuses and trying to find a reason not to go. Well, God answers him. He wouldn't answer Jacob, but he answers Moses. So God said to Moses, I am who I am. I am that I am. Now, this is not Yahweh. This is Aye, but this is the definition underneath Yahweh. I am that I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. The personal name of I am, of I am is Aye. It only appears here. And God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is my memorial name to all generations. And so here Moses is instructed that Yahweh, as a title they've been using ever since Adam, they've, they've known Yahweh, but they've never known its significance. Now, Moses is being clued into the fact that Yahweh is a memorial name. The reality behind it is Aye. The reality behind it is I am. So that significance becomes unique. And at the moment that that significance becomes unique, I mean, prior to that, they knew Yahweh, right? I mean, we, it isn't, you can flip and, and spot Yahweh in, in all kinds of passages. You can, you can spot Yahweh going all the way back to Genesis Chapter 2, when uh, in verse uh, uh, 4, there's the first use of Yahweh in Genesis 2, 4. So it's not like Yahweh was unknown. Abraham, uh, starting in Genesis chapter 12, is, is familiar with Yahweh. And all throughout the history of Israel, they, they, they knew Yahweh. But the significance of Yahweh and the meaning of Yahweh and having the the memorial name of Aye to underline that, that was reserved. So if they, before Moses, what I'm trying to say is they knew Yahweh. They knew him as the creator. 
Now, starting with Moses, they're given a deeper meaning, a deeper understanding of what Yahweh is all about. They're given his, the significance of his name as, as I am, as A-Y-A, as I am. And they're associating him not just with creator, but now with redeemer. Because he is not only the God who created them, he's the God who's redeeming them out of bondage in Egypt. So their appreciation for Yahweh, their creator, is now going to be uh, uh, added to with the appreciation for Aye, the I am, the redeemer. And that becomes the uh, significance of their unique relationship to Yahweh, that, uh, that they are entrusted with that memorial name, that they are entrusted with the significance of I am, the I am who I am of, of Exodus 3.14. All right, so he exhorts them to take courage. He reminds them, I am, and then he commands them, do not be afraid. Literally, stop fearing. Me fabesta. Me fabesta. The present passive imperative preceded by the particle may, may with the present indicating an activity that's already underway, an activity that's already being accomplished. See, in English, we have to use two different phrases. Uh, if, if we're warning children about drugs and they haven't started doing drugs, then we can say, don't do drugs. But if they've already started and they're presently a drug addict and they're presently engaged in, in drug activity, then rather than say don't do drugs, what do we say? We say stop doing drugs and don't do any more, right? So there's a difference between don't do something that you haven't started yet and stop doing something that you've already started and stop doing it right now and don't do it anymore, right? A big difference. Well, the construction that we have here in Greek indicates that this was already engaged. And there's no question they were afraid. We're told they were afraid. So he tells them, stop. Stop fearing. Stop being fearful as a passive imperative. It comes from phobeo, number 5399. We're used to phobos as a noun. Phobia, all of our phobias in uh, English. At one time I memorized like 30 different phobias. Uh, and now I don't, you know, everybody knows claustrophobia and agoraphobia and other things. Um, I like triskaidekaphobia, which was fear of the number 13. And there's, there's, there's an association of, I, I, like I say, I used to have a, a whole list of these things memorized. Uh, but all of our phobia words come from phobos, come from the verb phobeo. And uh, it speaks of this uh, carnal fear that, that they were afraid of ghosts. They were afraid of a phantasm. Why are you afraid of a phantasm? Are you afraid of ghosts? Are you afraid of demons? Why are you afraid of demons? They're disarmed. Whose side are you on anyway? If you're on the Lord's side, why are you afraid of demons? You're going to win. You're on the winning side. So this was his uh, command. Again, it's a volitional command. When the order is given, you're expected to obey. And just like with the first command to take courage, it's, a, it's an exercise of your choice. Are you going to choose to have a courageous attitude? Are you going to choose to be swallowed by this fear? Are you going to let the fear control you? Why? Stop that. And he issues the command with the expectation that the command is to be obeyed. That they are capable of uh, obeying the command. I never see the Lord issue a command for something that is impossible for you to do. Why would the Lord do such a thing? Why would he issue a command that's impossible to do? Only some kind of a tyrant or a maniac or idiot would do something like that, and the Lord is none of those. When he issues a command, he expects it to be obeyed, and the people to whom he gave the command are capable of obeying it. So when he says, stop being afraid, that is their opportunity. And one of the disciples does, and that's Peter. Peter's faith is only recorded by Matthew. This episode in verses 28 through 31 is not recorded in Mark, not recorded in John. Of course, not recorded in Luke. Luke doesn't even record the whole episode on the, on the lake. Let's go to Matthew 14 and look at Peter. Peter gets a lot of criticism because he starts to sink here when he's out of the boat. 
I think that's terribly unfair. Why am I going to criticize Peter for starting to sink when he gets out of the boat? Where, where were the other, the other 11 guys, <laughs> right? Yeah, they didn't even get out of the boat. So before I criticize Peter for starting to sink after he's out of the boat for a few steps, um, you know, before I maybe I'll criticize him, but before I do that, there's 11 other guys that need to get more criticism, or at least first, before we turn to Peter. All right, Matthew 14. And like I say, this is only recorded by Matthew. Mark and, and John don't record it. So, um, it is a ghost, they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage, I am, stop being afraid. Peter said to him, Lord... If it is you, first class condition, by the way, since it is you, Peter accepted the fact that it is him. I'll double check that in a moment, but I'm pretty sure it's first class condition. Command me to come to you on the water. Now, why, why take that step first? Why say, command me to come to you on the water? Why didn't he just say, oh, it's the Lord and jump out there to meet him? <laughs> okay, there you go. And also a recognition that when the Lord gives a command, the audience that receives that command is able to obey. So if the Lord commands him to walk on water, then combined with that command will come the empowerment and the ability, the grace provision to follow through on the command. That's why Peter says, command me to come towards that to come to you on the water if if the lord doesn't command it then he doesn't yet have the ability i'm going to double check here in matthew that the uh, condition in verse 28 is indeed first class yep a su a i'll switch to blue because we're still at yellow a, meaning if and you are, you are, a su a. Bob notices the two A's, one with a hat, one without a hat. A su a. If you are, if and you are, he knows that he is. So it's a statement of confidence. I believe Peter was the one out of the twelve that obeyed the command to stop fearing. That he obeyed the command to take courage. That he listened to the, to the exhortation of ego amy that I am. And so he says, if you are, which is the corollary to I am, right? When he says, I am, if you are, since you are, since you are Jehovah Elohim, Lord God of Israel, since you are, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. Just, I'll give you something to think about for this coming week, but just consider the nature of the imperative come. Because it's powerful. And when the imperative is given, is Peter supplied the ability to do so? Indeed he is. So he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. So um, the Lord was the first, Peter was the second, and some guy named Jose was the third. Did you get that email? No? Oh. <laughs> uh, I'll put that on the church website. That'll go under fun things. And Pastor John Page, he pointed out the third person to ever walk on water was a guy named Jose. I won't give it away, but there's a photograph that goes with that. All right. So he's walking on water. If we stopped it there, we'd think, way to go, Peter. Well, then we've got verse 30. Seeing the wind, he became frightened. Now notice. He had obeyed the command to stop being afraid. And that lasted one verse. <laughs> he obeyed that command. And then immediately he plunged back into carnality and sin again. So if, if we have a victory, we want to be very cautious that it doesn't allow us to get our eyes off the Lord and start looking around again. Because pride goes before the fall. There's, there's nothing more dangerous than uh, a, a victorious work assignment in the angelic conflict. Because it can produce pride. You can start thinking, yeah, that wasn't so bad. Boy, I sure handled that. 
As soon as you think that, you're already carnal because you didn't handle that. The Lord handled that. So the moment you start thinking, yeah, I got, I got a handle on that, or I did okay with that, that's the pride that goes before the fall. And so he obeys the command. He stops being afraid. He addresses the Lord in prayer. He says, if it is you, since it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And when he commands him to command him, that's a command. You ever think about that? I'll say that again. When he commands him to command him, that's a command. When Peter says, command me, that's a command. He's commanding Jesus to command Peter. Command me to walk on the water. So when he commands him to command him, that's a command. And, and he has the faith to do that. Do we have the faith to issue commands in our prayer life? If, if it's a command that's consistent with God's word. Lord had it. Peter had it. Moses had it. David had it. A lot of faithful believers utilized prayer, used imperatives in their prayers. And so he has faith and he has obeyed. He obeyed the command to stop being afraid. He got out of the boat. He started walking. But then he took his eyes off the Lord in verse 30. Why did he take his eyes off the Lord? Well, he was looking at the wind. Why do you do that? <laughs> you know, you've got the Lord and you've got problems. What do you want to fix your eyes on? Scripture says fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, was seated at the right hand of God. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. It doesn't mean looking around at your problems. It means fixing your eyes on Jesus. Therefore, since you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. So when you're looking at your bills, that's one of those things that are on the earth. When you're looking at your health, that's on the earth. When you're looking at your... Uh, Marriage test, that's on the earth. Because when you get to heaven, your bills aren't following you there. <laughs> your health test isn't following you there. And your marital test isn't following you there. The resurrection, there's neither marrying nor giving in marriage. You're, we're the bride of Christ. Or any other test and affliction you can think of here on this earth. Whatever test you're facing, your addictions, your struggles, your fears, none of them are going to glory. So keep your attention on the things above. That is, fixing your attention on Christ. Because the moment you start looking at the winds, you start looking at your bills, you start looking at your uh, non-appreciative, crummy husband, or you start looking at whatever the health test is, you took your eyes off the Lord and you start to sink. Seeing the wind, he became frightened and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. He cried out, Lord, save me. Now there's a short prayer. And guess what? It's also an imperative. It's a command. Lord, save me. It's a command. And it's not a long, flowering prayer either. And you'll also note uh, that there was an implied confession. <laughs> okay? He didn't take the time to say, uh, Dear Heavenly Father, I confess to you my fear. I confess to you my disobedience. I, I mean, he would have been gurgling long before he could have vocalized all that. In the urgency of the prayer, it's Lord, save me with an implied and understood confession. All right. McGee, uh, let me bring McGee up on this. McGee. Do you all have J. Vernon McGee and it's through the Bible? I hear people say that Peter failed to walk on the water, but that is not the way my Bible reads. My Bible says that Peter walked on the water to go to Jesus. This is not failure. Peter asked a tremendous thing of God. No wonder God used him in such a wonderful way during the days that followed. No wonder he was chosen to preach the sermon on the day of Pentecost. But then when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out saying, Lord, save me. Peter took his eyes off the Lord Jesus while he was walking on the water. When he began to sink... He prayed the shortest prayer in the Bible. <laughs> Lord, save me. If Simon Peter had prayed the, this prayer like some of us preachers pray, Lord, thou who art omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, Peter would have been 29 feet underwater before he would have gotten to his request. Peter got right down to business, and you and I need to pray like that. 
I liked what uh, Jay Ward and McGee had to say on that. We're going to spell out, we've got a few minutes left. Lord, since it is you, first class condition, command me. Since it is you, he had the confidence, he recognized the I am. Since you are. If we really want to draw it out, not since it's you, it's Jesus and not a ghost. It's since you are, I am. It is a complete acknowledgement of the ego amy, of the I am. Lord. That's curios, Lord. Since you are, I am, Jehovah, the Lord God of Israel. Command me. Jesus commanded and Peter came. Note, there were 11 others or more that stayed in the boat. I think Matthias was in the boat. I think Judas called Barsabbas was in the boat. There were probably a lot more, probably a significant sailing vessel. That since uh, Matthias and Judas Barsabbas in Acts chapter 1 were described as being eyewitnesses of everything between the baptism and the crucifixion and the resurrection, uh, I am led to believe that they were in the boat as well. Maybe some of the women that traveled with him were in the boat. So at least 11 others stayed in the boat. Once on the water, Peter took his eyes off the Lord and his fear returned. Now, why do we get our eyes off the Lord? Because we get complacent? We, I'm sorry? Yeah. Or, or we just kind of get negligent. We get, we get uh, complacent. We start thinking that things are kind of a breeze. Imagine Peter, I mean, walking on water. Can you imagine? I'd be looking around, walking, you know, yeah, look at me. You know, look at this. This is kind of, this, you know, and the moment you start doing that, you took your eyes off where they needed to be. Well, that's true, too. All right. Finally, here in point four, you of little faith. Why did you doubt? Now, the you's in there are singular you's. Greek has both a singular you and a plural y'all, which uh, English doesn't have. Texan has it, but English typically doesn't. And so when we have the you's, we have to question. When he said you of little faith, was he talking to all the ones in the boat? Was he talking to Peter? Specifically, he was talking to Peter. You, singular, of little faith. Why did you, singular, doubt? What was left unstated was y'all, plural, of no faith. Because Peter's was a little faith. But at least he had a little. And remember, if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, you can move mountains, you can walk on water, you can do all kinds of stuff. What was left unstated was you, plural, y'all, of no faith. He's rebuking Peter, you of little faith. But by extension, the much larger group has a much greater rebuke. And that's the rebuke of having no faith because they didn't obey the command to stop being afraid. They didn't get out of the boat. You, plural, y'all of no faith. Why are you, plural, why are y'all still in the boat? So he rebukes Peter on an individual basis and then he... Uh, but leaves it unstated as to the additional rebuke that uh, clearly is necessary. Now, when we come back next week, we'll wrap this up. It'll take a third and final session to wrap this up. Because uh, when they, they got into the boat, Peter and the Lord, the wind stopped. And, uh, and we're told in one of the other accounts that their boat is immediately teleported to the, the shore, the destination where they were going. And the wind stopped and their boats transported there. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, you are certainly God's son. Are they just now figuring this out? What did, they, what did they think he was before this day, before this journey? And what did they not understand with respect to the multiplying of the loaves and the fish? The loaves and the fishes. All right. So they have a problem. And they need a direct Bible class. They got one of them out there in the middle of the lake. They're going to get a follow-up here when they get to shore. That he has to address them. And he has to address them in some pretty harsh terms. And I'll leave you with a verse to chew on. 
Or are you chewing on too much as it is? You're already chewing on the imperative to come. When uh, the Lord gives the imperative to come, does he provide the... Is there an expectation of the ability to do so? Um, but chew on this in Mark chapter 6, verse 52. Verse 51 says, He got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped, and they were utterly astonished. For they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. Now I asked about half an hour ago, are these guys believers? And you all agreed with me that they were believers. Their heart was hardened. You say, that's impossible. A believer can't harden their heart. They must have never been saved in the first place. Well, we'll talk about them. And we'll deal with that. So you've got a week to chew on it. And we'll, uh, we'll come back and uh, look and see what saith the Scriptures. Father, thank you for this day, for the truth of your word, for your faithfulness. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.